podcast and for a re-release, in a sense, of part two of the conversation I had with Christopher of the Do Explain podcast. Now, this podcast has not been released by me yet. It hasn't appeared on my YouTube channel or in my podcast feed, but it's appeared on the Do Explain podcast feed, which I encourage everyone to subscribe to Do Explain. Chris has lots of really interesting conversations with people of various levels of sympathy, one might say, with the worldview of David Deutsch. It is a diverse panoply of people that Chris talks to, and so I encourage you to check out Do Explain and subscribe to Do Explain and support Do Explain if you can. And what we're talking about, support, I've heard that if you hit the subscribe button, this is what YouTubers apparently say, then this helps me out somehow or other, or hit the little bell thing that's up there, uh, apparently that helps too. So uh, for the first time ever, I'm saying that, hey, why not subscribe to my channel? Today in this episode, this part of the conversation, it was a long conversation I had with Chris, we're talking about all the classics, all my greatest hits, <laughs> free will and consciousness. I'm talking about Bayesianism. The most fun part, I think, of the conversation, aside from talking to Chris, was at the end he likes to take questions from Twitter. And so that was lots of fun, trying to muddle my way through answers from Twitter. And so that's a fun part uh, towards the end of this interview conversation. Whatever it is Chris does over there at Do Explain. And aside from that, I think one of my favorite parts of the conversation is my attempt to explain theories as criticisms. This is accepted reasonably well, or at least people understand that in science, increasingly they're coming to understand in science, COVID irrationalities aside, people are starting to understand that science is a process. And so science is this error-correcting mechanism, as we say in Popperian terms. We don't have a fundamental set of beliefs in science. That's not what science is about. We don't say that here forever is our unchanging model of the atom or here forever is our unchanging model of the cosmos. We change our ideas over time as we correct our errors. It's not like everything gets thrown out, but nothing stays the same for long because that's how we improve. That's how we make progress. That's uncontroversial, except when it comes to morality. When it comes to morality, some people have, even rational people, people who are ostensibly experts in the area of morality and philosophy, they think that morality, the whole domain of the whole area of knowledge which is morality, operates via a different epistemology as compared to science. And so in morality, you have your foundational beliefs and they just cannot possibly change or be improved. You cannot make progress upon them. Or some people think at least insofar as you can make progress, there needs to be a foundation. I won't mention any names because... Lots of people make this error. I think it began basically with religion. It was probably there in the antecedents when we weren't even able to speak language. This idea that there is a certain set of beliefs, practices, ways of doing things that just must stand for all time. These are the moral things. And so morality is seen to stand apart in epistemological terms as compared to every other area of knowledge where we can incrementally make progress and correct errors over time. But it's just not so. Morality, like science, is a process of criticizing 
our best understandings of whatever our present set of explanations and theories happens to be. And so if we take any one moral theory, we should see it as a criticism of what we should do next. And so it can be seen as a guide, but not a foundation, not a fixed thing. For more on this, by the way, see my YouTube video, which is a response to Sam Harris when he talked to David Deutsch precisely about this point, about this idea of what the nature of morality is. But for now, enjoy my conversation with Chris on Do Explain. All right, Christopher here. Welcome to Do Explain. Before we begin, I'd like to thank my current supporters who inspire me to carry on with this project and make it financially viable as well. I'm very grateful to all of you. Big hugs. And while I'm not in the business of telling people what to do, I can't share my vision for Do Explain going forward. I like to work on the podcast full time instead of just a few days a month. I want to build a real platform for the fun and friendly exchange of interesting ideas. And I want to do it ad-free, if possible, because I don't want any ideas to be off-limits for us to explore, and I also want to keep saying dumb shit without repercussions. But to do this, I'll need a steady income, and that's why I need your help. So if you enjoy what I'm doing here, and you want to join me in my vision and become a part of growing this project, consider going over to patreon.com doexplain and sign up to become a monthly supporter. All right, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, that's one of the, I think, most subtle, difficult changes in perspective if you come to this Popperian way of understanding knowledge. And David has emphasized this in certain places. And it is kind of shocking when you accept it. And what I'm talking about here is that all the theories are critical in the sense that they are criticisms of every other competitor to them. And sometimes there is no other competitor, but they should be seen as criticism. So something like quantum theory, exactly. the scientific theory of quantum theory, is a criticism of every other competing claim about the nature of reality. So a scientific theory is a criticism, which is an interesting way of thinking about things. And so then when you get to something like uh, morality – that's a really interesting way of thinking about morality and why we think in this way of thinking about knowledge that there is no foundation for morality. In the same way, there's no foundation for science. There's not some set of axioms from which you build the rest of your scientific edifice. No, what you're doing is you're explaining stuff, and in explaining, you're criticizing the alternative. So when it comes to morality, for example, it's not like we say, okay, well, utilitarianism is the ultimate foundation for morality, or indeed, uh, you know, the Bible is the ultimate foundation for reality, or pick whatever your favorite moral theory is. That's not what knowledge is. Knowledge isn't about starting from foundations and then deriving what you're supposed to think is absolutely true. And in the case of morality, what you think you should do next. No, instead, you come up with a guess about what you should do next, and then you criticize it. And you might use these grand moral theories as criticisms of your theory about what to do next, because that's essentially what morality is about, what to do next, whereas science is about what is the case, given you know um, what we know about reality. Um, so so th this concept of the critical nature of knowledge 
uh, even people hearing me speak now might still be thinking that what we're saying is that in this worldview, these four strands, as David refers to them as, are the the, the final word on uh, the way in which we understand reality. No, these are criticisms of every other alternative. Uh, and there are, uh, in, our, in our estimation, no viable alternatives. You know, when we get to critical rationalism in particular, this, this way of understanding the nature of knowledge, it, it is a minority view. It remains a minority view. The majority view is still some version of Plato's justified true belief idea, this inductivist conception that you accumulate uh, evidence over time, become more and more certain about uh, your ideas. And then Bayesianism is, you know, as I, I like to say, the, the inductivism in a cheap tuxedo. It's just where you, you then put a mathematical formula on top of your inductivism and then just say, well, we're going to extrapolate uh, what is actually ultimately true. And we'll get more and more confident and we'll, we'll continue to increase our confidence with each new bit of evidence that we gather in our theory. And so the, this is the most common way, uh, the most popular way that scientists think about how science works. And uh, uh, Popper was the one who said, you know, this entire conception of the way in which knowledge is built and the way in which science is, works, it just cannot possibly be the case. Uh, we can't get to the final answer. And in any way, um, knowledge is objective. And uh, we, we started off with that little sketch, you know, um, and me, me, me having <laughs> a go at some people. And I, I do like to have a go as much as I support someone like Yaron Brook, and I, I think Yaron Brook is a great defender of things like capitalism, I think that fundamentally Ayn Rand got epistemology wrong and I'm kind of offended to some extent that she called the epistemology that she has objectivism. I, I, she's taken it away <laughs> in a sense and, and, and messed it up, messed up um, what epistemology is. Popper has genuinely objective knowledge. He is talking about not only knowledge in objects, but an objective way beyond your mind, beyond your personal experience of being able to assess a claim as being false, being able to refute a claim. He doesn't rely on certainty or confidence, but this is precisely the way that the objectivist, the uh, Ayn Rand objectivist, talk about knowledge. And it's, it's a wrong way to talk about it. It's a wrong way to conceive of knowledge as being about being certain, what you can be certain of, because then it reduces epistemology to feelings, to emotions. And Ayn Rand is supposed to be not about emotions. But in this case, when it comes to epistemology, the most important branch of philosophy to some extent, about which you learn and you're able to judge the rest of um, philosophy and the rest of knowledge, you give up on actual objectivism, and you go down the road of feelings, and you go down the road of uh, how confident are you in this particular claim, or you know how, how mm. certain can you be, uh, accumulating evidence. And of course, she doesn't she she doesn't understand the problems with inductivism either, and neither do the uh, the objectivists. Yeah, that's a shame, and, uh, and, and that that's probably the 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 closest, and it's not really close, but uh, at least compared to some of the other ways in which scientists themselves talk about how we know that a particular scientific theory is a good scientific theory or a good explanation. They, they talk in terms of, uh, you know, this accumulation of evidence over time, which increases your confidence and they will have some sort of calculation. And so the, the, this is where we get this notion of Bayesianism from. Yeah. So, so I want to ask you something more about that, actually, but I just want to add to our talk about knowledge and knowledge growth and misconceptions there. There's no such thing as a theory without a corresponding problem that the theory is meant to solve. 
And I also think that this is very uh, counterintuitive to people, especially coming from traditional school system, which is not at all problem-centered, but is about here is everything you need to learn that's fundamental. And it, it basically just endorses memorization because of that thing. Because if you don't have a problem situation where you can actively create this knowledge to fit into your unique uh, situation, everybody's problem situation is different, then it's not going to click for you. You might learn, quote unquote, a certain fact, but you have nowhere to place it in relation to your problems. And hence, you didn't learn anything. You memorized it. And then, like most people, you forget about it. And so what was the point of that? So for instance, when someone like Sam Harris, and I bring him up because just as you have mentioned in your own response to his recent musings about free will and the self, he has the best explanation and the best uh, defense of this theory against free will and, and the self. And so that's why we're bringing him up. And he's also very famous and reaches a lot of people. So I kind of want to offer an alternative view here and push back on that since we think we have the better explanation. But to me, his whole view seems to be disregarding the fact that free will is an entity invoked by our best explanations of the behavior of people Choices is needed to explain why we do different things, free choices. And his whole stick seems to be to deny that theory, just like he or other people might deny computational universal, universality. And then there's nothing in its place. And you've spoken about this at great length that just because we have a problem with the theory doesn't mean we just refute it because we don't have anything better to jump to. And his alternative and people in his camps, like Robert Sapolsky, who I also think is is a really uh, cool guy, and I, I like listening to him. But it's the same thing there. It's, oh, it's all determined. That's what I take from that. It's all determined, and everything just happens. And that doesn't help us at all to solve the problem of differentiating between different variants of voluntary behavior. And hence, it's not enough to refute the notion of free will as we see it. Yeah, and Sam does say, of course, he accepts the reality of choices. He just doesn't think that we make them. Uh, I don't know what yeah. makes them if it's but not that, us. That's the same and problem, right? You just push it back. Yes. Well, what yes. makes them then? Oh, determinism. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, well, that's not an explanation. We're, we're, we're reduced to the same sort of state as any other animal. So so the cat, you know, choosing between whether to remain asleep or to get up and go to the, uh, the, the dish and have some food, there's a choice there being made in the same way that we, we make a choice on this view, that there is nothing really there other than the unfolding of physical laws acting upon matter in a sense. Now, th we can argue against the, the objective reality of what I would say the necessity of free will is, but I, but I, I just want to point to this notion of Sam's claim that subjectively we have no experience of free will and he says that you know this is one of the one of the interesting insights of uh, being contemplative or of, of introspecting of, of meditating perhaps and being mindful about how thoughts arise and that if you're in this state you can see that thoughts simply arise now what we would want to say about that is that firstly that that's an empiricist claim. What you're doing there is you're relying upon your own personal experience of something and concluding on the basis that therefore your, your interpretation of that particular experience must therefore be true. 
in the same way that, you know, my, my, the, the way I like to think about it is in following David Deutsch saying this in a slightly different context, our experience of stars in the night sky are of small, dim, cold points of light. But our experience of that tells us nothing about the underlying reality, what we are necessarily compelled to accept as being true about the nature of stars, namely that they're actually huge and hot furnaces fusing hydrogen into helium. And we don't get that from our experience of stars. It comes via a chain of explanation. And in the same way, I would suggest that although you might have the experience of lacking free will at certain moments, for example, when you deliberately try not to engage with a problem. And, and Sam says, you know, this is an important function of meditation is to drop your problem for a while, to, to not be caught up with your thoughts. Well, yeah, I, I am unsurprised that in those moments that you don't have the experience of free will. But therefore, concluding on that basis that because you lack the experience, that therefore there is no free will, is a non sequitur. Because there's lots of things we don't have experience of, which nonetheless are real, and vice versa which we do have experience of, but which aren't real, namely the stars again. Okay, We have the experience of the cold star, but in fact, it's a hot ball of gas. And that's the subjective way in which I would engage with the free will debate. Just, I, I would suggest that subjectively, there are times, and all I can do, and this is where we get into just, we were at loggerheads, Sam will say, well, no, I don't have the experience, and anyone who meditates uh, will agree with me that you don't have the experience of free will. All I can say to that is, I do. I do have the experience. The thought arises. Now, where does the thought arise? In me. That is me. Part of me, part of the nature of being a person is you have the conscious experience of thoughts. You're not identical to those thoughts. You have those thoughts. But those thoughts arise somewhere, namely in you. You are the thing that is giving rise to those thoughts. You are this creative mind from which the thoughts are springing. That's you. That is as much you as the conscious experience of those thoughts. And that is just the subjective way of. Now I can talk about the objective way of um, dealing with this. Yeah, thing. absolutely. But I think I think the subjective entry point is good because Sam stresses that that's his original contribution to this timeless debate of free will, which is you you're actually wrong about your subjective experience, and. I mean, you, you can go down the route of saying, okay, but it's a definitional game. Sam is saying that I is the conscious experience, the conscious representation. That's what he says doesn't exist. And we would say that, yeah, but that's uh, too narrow of a definition. I know that David Deutsch has a great example of solipsism, a refutation of that in The Fabric of Reality, where he says that there are problems with uh, defining I that narrowly. So so that's the difference between us. But also, I think the, the, the deeper problem there with his argument is, as you've already said, but I have a different angle here, the same mistake a lot of meditators make about the empiricism here, that there's such a thing as direct observation, right? Because his argument seems to be that, yeah, if you actually meditate, you focus your mind, you'll get access to the way the mind is, the way the mind objectively is, and there's no interpretation involved. And what I would say to that is, yeah, let's let's use Popper's all observation is theory laden. Even if you explicitly 
don't think any verbal thoughts. You don't have anything coming up in consciousness, per se, which is an experience people can have. There's still an interpretational thought behind all of that that says, I'm not thinking right now. Not in words, but there's an interpretational structure there, a frame. Even when you think you're pure consciousness, there's interpretation of experience there. There's no experience without interpretation. And hence, he might be completely mistaken about that fact because of his theoretical framework there. His theories might be wrong. And it's also the case that, yeah, I think it's strange to identify more with the conscious than the unconscious part of the mind. To uh, level it out a little bit, of course you can use subjective experience to inquire about the mind, and you can use it as kind of a testing lab subjectively for different theories you have, but it's conjectural just as anything else. So no human have direct access to their own thoughts either, and it's ridiculous in my book to just limit thoughts and concepts to the explicit level because that's just the tip of the iceberg. That was an eloquent explanation of precisely my thoughts on on that matter. Uh, And where one can have this experience that Sam also describes eloquently, and in the Waking Up app he is at pains to try to explain the experience of what is happening during some of these occasions where you have an experience of apparently a lack of free will, which I wouldn't describe it that way, but he's describing this experience as being a lack of free will. But whatever that experience is, isn't cashed out until later during the explanation. And it's that explanation which can contain all sorts of errors that even if Sam regards as being accurate to him, making sense, (laughs) pardon the pun, to him, that nevertheless could be flawed in very serious ways, in in the ways that that I kind of um, have suggested, that if you go down the road of, well, Sam, Sam goes down the road not only of denying free will, but denying the existence of the self as being separate. And so not wanting to make a distinction between self and the rest of consciousness or conscious experience or the rest of reality, uh, however it yeah. might be phrased. But but this is just to say, as as many people have over the years, that, well, you know, cats and cars and cucumbers don't exist because ultimately all that exists are the fundamental particles in the universe just interacting one with another. But this is a mistaken view of what science is about. Science is about trying to explain things not only at the fundamental level, but at every level of emergence. And emergence is a real thing. Cats really do exist over and above the fundamental particles that make them up. And so this is all that we're saying from the objective side of things about free will, that it is important to invoke it as an explanation of people's behavior. Now, now Sam says that if we give away free will, if we give up on this notion of free will, we gain something morally. Namely, we gain the ability not to blame people for their bad behavior. Now, we can also give up, importantly, this notion of retributive justice. So we can then go down the road of saying, well, we don't need to punish people in order to get back at them in some sort of vengeful way for when they do something wrong in society. If we accept that there's no free will, then we don't have to. Well, we don't have to do that anyway. We can be reasonable people who accept that there is such a thing as free will as people freely creating certain kinds of knowledge that explains their behavior. But that doesn't mean that we need to be retributive when they make a mistake. After all, 
people are fallible and they're going to make mistakes. And when people make mistakes, which is inevitable due to a lack of knowledge, due to a misconception, then uh, there is a, a degree of responsibility there. It's where they're focusing their attention, where they're choosing to focus their attention. But we don't need to blame them because we are all of us infinitely ignorant, as Popper says. We, we can all make mistakes, uh, terrible moral mistakes at times. Uh, and in accepting that, in accepting that moral framework and that way of viewing a human being and their culpability, we can then mm. also have compassion for them because we, like they, are completely and utterly ignorant of so much and can quite easily make errors, including important moral errors. But I think this is a compassionate way. This is indeed a more compassionate way to accept that other people have free will and sometimes they'll make the mistake of focusing their attention on the wrong things. And that is not a reason to be vengeful or to try to be retributive when they do make mistakes. It's a reason for accepting that we can correct their errors, that we can help them to learn the lessons that civilization thinks are the most important moral lessons at the moment, uh, a positive vision of a human being as this knowledge creator who will continue to err enables us to have a legal system, a justice system that views people as being, yes, culpable in a sense, but also capable of changing, capable of correcting their errors. And therefore, uh, we can be compassionate. We can, we, can, we can use a prison system, for example, as a place to rehabilitate people. And we can also have a stance of not wanting the death penalty, for example, because we think that that is, that is a way of destroying the means of error correction. What a perfect way to destroy the means of error correction by destroying a person. Now they never have the opportunity to actually correct the error that caused them to get into this situation where they might be put on death row. But if we have this, this positive vision of what people are as creating knowledge, correcting errors, then I think that's perfectly compassionate and would be co totally in line with someone who, who, like Sam, is also wanting us to have legal structures that allow for compassion. Uh, I think this is a perfectly uh, reasonable way of conceiving of uh, people as not merely error-prone, but as, as, in a sense, divine, in a sense, uh, more than merely the outworkings of the laws of physics, as being something over and above that, emergent, causal entities in the universe that can be corrected and course corrected when they when they do make mistakes inevitably will make mistakes yeah that's a great view i think and i know in my last episode with michael golding he said something like we were talking in the context of people being delusional and and having schizophrenia having paranoid delusions and things like that and not acting rationally as a result and he was addressing that and saying something like, well, is it still a person? And then he said, of course, it's still a person. Even if the person was comatose, it would still be a person because there's potential there, the creative Perfect. potential. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind morally that I think ties into what you said there. And you can still uh, use Sam Harris's own example of uh, Charles Whitman, I think, is the guy with the tumor pressing on the amygdala that is used to explain why he suddenly shot a lot of people and killed himself. You, can, you don't have to go to either extreme. One extreme is saying that he is not responsible at all. We're all just atoms in the void. The other one, or because he has the tumor. The other extreme is to say that he is fully responsible. We don't care about the tumor at all. But you can, you, you, there's a middle ground there where we can say that it's a person. A person is in general responsible for their voluntary behavior. 
we have to explain how much harder it was for him to make certain decisions when he has, I don't know, a constant rage response. Of course, the the tumor might have influenced him and made it much harder for him to not do what he did than it would have been for me, who doesn't have the tumor. But it, there are gradations, and it, it still makes sense to keep the agency of a person while still thinking about what, what what counts as involuntary behavior. And here we don't have enough good explanations of how physiology ties in to creativity and the software there to actually make that judgment uh, perfectly well. Well, perfectly well, we can never do, but, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I listened to that excellent episode with Michael. And there's uh, brilliant insights in there. And I think that, uh, as Michael hinted at, sometimes with this idea that we have about what people are, the misconception can creep in that therefore people do have this, in some sense, ultimate responsibility for their behavior. And that therefore, for example, this leads to the misconception, I would suggest, that Things like medication aren't necessary for any kind of psychological condition. Um, I think this is a misconception for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, this idea that uh, someone who believes in the universality of the human mind and the human mind is literally able to, you know, model any kind of physical system, including itself. It's such that it can think its way out of problems. So if you're depressed, yeah, you can theory. think your way out of depression. Yeah. In principle, yes, this is true, but this does not mean that in practice you know how to do this, that you have the answer in hand right now. And I think Michael was right to sort of flag this as a reason why you might need uh, medical interventions at times for psychiatric conditions, and I couldn't agree more, uh, until such time as we have a full scientific understanding of what the human mind is doing then, of course, we're going to have to use rules of thumb. We're going to have to use the best solution we have at the moment. And for many people, it's going to be certain kinds of medication. We simply can't necessarily think our way out of all the problems that we're going to have. And there will be people who are going to need uh, these kind of interventions. Um, yes, but there, there, there has been this misconception that, um, that if you go down the road of uh, universality of the human mind, that therefore, oh, well, you just think your way out of the <laughs> problem that you happen to be in, I think that no, well, that's a, that that's wrong. In principle, yeah, uh, in some ultimate distant future, perhaps we might have the ultimate psychiatric um, solution to every single mental condition, and so therefore people will know how to do that. But we don't know how to do that now, and so in the interim, uh, we're certainly going to have to rely upon that the best knowledge that that psychiatrists and psychologists have in order to solve certain problems. All right, Brett, might I thought it would be great to. <laughs> I just have to tell you what we we started recording and then Brett needed some water so I, I did that mate thing uh, before too and I think that's ridiculous that I have <laughs> scripted jokes that's all good it's cool uh, so yeah so <laughs> I thought we could end on Twitter questions I got a lot of questions this time around so it'd be fairly impolite not to go over some of them so uh, yeah let's see what we have here one is from Tristan. And he says, I've listened to heaps of breath stuff, but something I haven't heard him speak about much is the fun criterion. Curious what his thoughts are about its strengths slash limitations and what he thinks it means in practice. 
Well, that's a that's a tough one. I'm not. Yeah. You know, I said I said earlier that um you've had these excellent guests prior to me, and every time you had these guests on, I thought, well, that person's done a better job on that topic than I could ever do. And so, when it comes to this, I think Luli could do a better job, and of course, David could do a better job on this. But what I would say, and this is going to come across, I don't know, a, a little arrogant, but I don't know what the problem is that the fun criterion... Oh, I shouldn't say that. I, I shouldn't say that. I, I guess I know what the problem is that the fun criterion is trying to solve. It's trying to give advice to people on how they should devote their time, where they should put their time. They should follow the fun, as Lily says. You know, you need to find a problem, fall in love with it, as Popper would say, until such time as a new problem comes along and then you fall in love with those. Now, for me personally, I, I, I guess I've implicitly just had on board running on the software the fun criterion my whole life. I was never concerned about what anyone else oh, thought about what I was doing. Yeah. And so I, you know, like I say, I was at school, I just wanted to be an astronomer. That's all I wanted to do. And I went off to university and I actually did study astronomy. And of course, that doesn't mean infallibly I, I picked the right subjects at uni. I made a lot of mistakes and ended up, um, you know, picking things that I, in retrospect, after I tried them, I thought, oh, well, that was a terrible idea. I won't do that again. I won't go down the road of, of picking a subject like psychology again. So, um, um, you know, I did make errors along the way, but I had implicitly the fun criteria. I was just doing whatever I wanted to do. And it, through to today, I just, I've always done what I wanted to do. And I've never really much asked for advice on, you know, what do you think I should study? What do you think I should pursue? What job should I get? But of course, I've been the person that sometimes people have asked, you know, what do you think I should do? What do you think I should study? What subject should I take? This kind of thing. And I guess what I'm saying with respect to the fun criteria is I don't, I personally don't quite understand what problem it's trying to solve, which sounds terribly arrogant as if I've got all the answers. I don't. It's just that I know what's fun for me and I can't possibly try to guess what it's going to be fun for someone else other than to say what David, of course, has said and Luli has said, follow the fun. Um, so, yeah, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't add uh, much insight to that. Yeah, that doesn't help at all, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess you're you're the wrong person to ask, uh, similar to how if you as a skinny guy go up to the most buff guy at the gym who just genetically had the predisposition to build muscle, whatever the fuck he was doing, then he's not the guy to ask for answers on how to build muscle for you, right? <laughs> and so for you... Uh, who's had uh, seemingly a really cushy life then, Brett. <laughs> I'm glad for you. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe you're not the right person to ask, but I, I find that interesting. I, I've never heard anyone say anything critical of the fun criterion within the community itself, so that's always fun. I do think that it can be very helpful. For, for me, who has struggled a lot with psychological and physiological issues that I won't stop talking about, it is very useful. Because I've often forced myself to do a lot of things out of uh, duty or, yeah, this is what I should do. And being able to use the phenomenology of am I actually enjoying what I'm doing, like I'm doing right now with you, is a very useful marker. Yeah, so, of course. Uh, yeah, I think that, yeah. yeah, so that's where, yeah, I guess I had that intuitive understanding. I probably couldn't have explained it explicitly yeah. until David did put it into words. But that idea of if you're not having fun, that's a criticism of what you're doing and that the not having fun bit contains this inexplicit content of you just feel bad. You've got this conflict between your ideas about what you want to do and what you are actually doing. And of course, I've, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not 
immune to being coerced into things, even coercing myself into things at times of, of, of violating my own uh, implicit fun criterion. I can still, you know, people are fallible, they make mistakes. So, so I think, yes, um, the, the most important thing to probably extract out of that fun criterion um, for anyone who, who, who um, needs more assistance in this, this area is to recognise that if you feel bad about doing something, whether it's a job you have, it's a book you're reading, it's a thing you're studying, it's a relationship that you're in, et cetera, and so on and so forth – if you're not having fun, if it feels bad, that's a criticism. And then you need to go about doing the work to try and figure out how you're going to solve that. It doesn't mean that, you know, if you're in this job that you don't like and you're not finding fun, that you immediately quit the job. It could be a solution, but in almost all cases, it probably won't be the solution. You need to recognize that this is a reality. And then that's a positive way of thinking about this. You can improve your life. You know, you don't have to, you're not compelled to remain in that place. It might be that you're going to be stuck in that situation for longer than you want to be. But at least if you consciously recognize the situation you're in isn't fun, it isn't meeting the fun criterion, then you can begin the process of taking steps to get yourself into a position where you are meeting your own fun criterion. Okay, so next one here. Well, we've touched on Bayesianism before, but why do Bayesian philosophers fail to notice the inductive nature of Bayesianism, including the less wrong community, when the CRs see it so clearly? And then I would add to that, when is it actually useful to invoke probability statements uh, when explaining the world? Because I'm grappling with that problem myself, seeing how Bayesianism is essentially uh, inductivism with added maths and probability, and it's not useful there. When is it actually useful? Well, certainly in games of chance, probability is a useful uh, way of assessing your odds and to recognize that, you know, r repeatedly going to the casino is just not a viable way to secure your future financially. Um, so that, that's a reasonable use of probability to understand things like that. Now, probability is not useful in places where you don't already know what the odds are, where you're just making a guess about the future and ignoring the role of human creativity there. So... Places where probability will be useful is where human creativity is not involved. So you can think of places where that might be the case. For example, you know, you run a factory and the factory is uh, using some sort of robotic system to just keep on producing the widgets that you're producing. And you can do a frequency analysis on how often the robot makes mistakes, makes errors. Now, human creativity isn't involved in that process until you decide as the factory owner to get yourself involved in that process. So you can have a good estimation of how much money you're wasting based upon how frequently the robot makes the makes an error in your, your production line kind of thing. So there, there, there are these ways of using probability in quite reasonable ways. You know, that my article, my own article on my website about Bayesian epistemology, epistemology in scare quotes, begins with the tale about how it can be used in medicine, for example. And so there are these ways in which um, uh, reasonable statisticians can deploy good statistical methods in order to come to conclusions where a human being is not getting involved in using their creativity. So these are the places where you can use probability quite reasonably. Uh, but as uh, David's got this wonderful talk uh, online as well about the misuses of probability, probability, one of the most interesting ones that I'm interested in is, of course, the application of probability to quantum theory. And of course, it, it forms an important part of probability there. It's just whether or not you interpret the probabilistic claims within quantum theory as representing an actual objective 
probabilistic nature of reality, which we say isn't true. It's not the case that certain things will probably happen or probably not happen. All the things that can happen do happen in the quantum world. But what we say is you have subjective randomness. So there's subjectively, you can calculate the probability. And this is known as, uh, as far as I'm aware in my layperson's understanding, known as the decision theoretic argument. The idea that you can deploy probabilities from a subjective point of view, so long as you don't take seriously the notion Mm. that, in fact, things will probably happen or not. Now, as to the um, first part of your question about why do Bayesians continue to uh, endorse Bayesianism, not realizing the inductivist nature. Well, I don't know that they understand the problem of induction. Not many people do uh, uh, necessarily think that there's anything wrong with induction. Um, uh, It seems to make logical sense that this is the way in which science works. You know, the, the sun has hitherto risen every single day. Therefore, on the basis, I can conclude with some degree of confidence that it will rise tomorrow. They think that this is what science is about. And, uh, you know, as we know, this is not what science is about. Science is not about making extrapolations. The extrapolations come much later. After you have an explanatory theory, you can then derive predictions from the explanatory theory. So in the case of the sun rising thing, well, you, what, what you're actually talking about there is, well, the, the earth is rotating on its axis and the sun is coming into view, you know, once every sort of 24 hours kind of thing. Um, and on that basis, you then predict that the sun will rise tomorrow. But it's not, you know, because of the past, you know, the future is going to be the same way. But, you know, you have to have a sort of a, at least a basic understanding of the Popperian picture of epistemology uh, before you understand all the ways in which inductivism uh, this this claim about inductivism is false, can't work, can't possibly work, never did work. And so therefore any attempt to sharpen it up, I think you had a wonderful way of explaining this. I think we were, <laughs> we were, we were talking offline where you, you said, um, you know, uh, inductivism, uh, we know inductivism doesn't work. Uh, here's all the ways in which du- inductivism doesn't work. Bayesianism comes along and says, and yet here's the way in which inductivism works. <laughs> you know, so it simply is wrong. And all we need to do is to refute the inductivist conception of knowledge production in order to refute Bayesianism because Bayesianism is just um, sort of the icing on the top of this inductivist misconception. Yeah, I mean, you only have the knowledge you have, right? So I don't find it strange that the in- community that endorses Bayesianism and might not engage that much with Popper, oftentimes, as when Steven Pinker uh, recently tweeted out that article as a supposed refutation of Popper's view, it's a mistaken view of Popper. It's a Duham Quine problem all over again, and we've already responded to that. Yeah, so I, I think it's just a matter of them not engaging with the refutations enough to see the problems. And uh, I remember myself when I read Beginning of Infinity the first time, inductivism was one of the hardest parts for me to really grasp. And I remember that feeling you talked about in the beginning that was for you with quantum theory finally clicked for me when I was laying in the bathtub listening to the audiobook. I, I really understood why you couldn't induce knowledge from the senses. So I think it's pretty tricky. You have to put in the work to create that knowledge for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's something to be said for the idea that knowledge is conjectural. I think people balk at that. They want a solid foundation. They desire a solid foundation because 
that's the culture. That's religious type thinking. Mm. I think that it just imbues the culture that we need a touchstone. We need a book. You know, the inerrant word of God. But of course, you know, these rationalists will say, "Well, you know, we don't we don't endorse um, Christianity or Judaism or Islam or any of these great ancient mythologies. We're we're beyond that. You know, we are rational people who don't believe in the supernatural. But in fact, their epistemology is precisely the same. They're looking for a foundation and authority." on which they can base all future claims. And we reject that, you know. And so that that is a, a very deep attack, a very deep criticism of the nature of knowledge in that framework of having authorities and having foundations. And people who are Popperian, who who give up that notion of needing a foundation and just instead explaining things as this web of interconnected knowledge, none of which is certain, none of which relies upon an authority. We enjoy that and we, 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 we flourish within that understanding of the way in which knowledge works. But I can appreciate and accept that it has got to be emotionally unsettling. You know, you can either enjoy the roller coaster, that sense of vertigo that I spoke about at the beginning, or you can be terrified at the roller coaster and think, oh my gosh, I don't want to do this. Something's really going to go wrong. And if you take away the foundation from people, they think that it's going to end up in relativism. Of course, it doesn't. It's, it's the furthest thing from relativism because we say that you can be wrong about stuff. That's the whole point of Popperian epistemology. You can be wrong. You can refute things. You can say what is wrong. So it's not relativism. But people who misunderstand it think that if you give up the foundation, you give up the truth, therefore you're a relativist. And it's just that's just not the case. The relativists have much more in common with the foundationalists than they have with us. The relativists say there is no such thing as truth. And the foundationalists are just sort of flipping that and saying, no, there absolutely is and we've got it in hand already. So... Um, <laughs> This yeah. is uh, yeah. So this is why we we kind of are fighting on two fronts against the relativists and against the the fundamentalist foundationalists. I mean, of course, the rationalists wouldn't think of themselves as fundamentalists. Uh, they would think of themselves as rationalists, open to any idea. But of course, they uh, ultimately they 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 are they are committed to certain premises. They want to find the the certain axioms upon which to build the edifice of knowledge, and and hopefully they'll they'll complete the edifice of knowledge at some point in the future, and then they'll be able to tell everyone else what to do because they will be the final arbiters of truth, being the philosopher kings and experts that they are. Yeah, I can't wait for that. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, so a quick follow-up on that. You said with the, the probability statements there, let's say we have a medical situation where a person is showing symptoms and we have three different alternatives that equally well explain the symptoms. and we don't have any explanation for what to choose there. And let's say we just have to choose one of them and we, do, we, we don't have any experiments right now that can falsify either of them. Does it make sense to say there that, yeah, well, in 60% of previous cases with these symptoms, it's, it's been X. So therefore, we should try that one first. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that's one of the kind of examples that I use in my article. My, I think I can't remember my article very well. I'll just try and go off the top of my head. But yeah, if you have a, you know, you're a doctor, you have a patient who presents in front of you and uh, they say, oh, I've got all the symptoms of malaria. You know, I've been on to Dr. Google and I think I've got malaria and they're saying I've got the sweats and whatever else. Then the doctor can make an assessment being an intelligent, knowledgeable, compassionate doctor and say, 
well, ask some follow-up questions. So at that point, they don't know. They don't know. The only thing they've got to go on is the symptoms that the person is presenting with, some of which include symptoms similar to malaria, like, for example, sweating, or they've got cold chills or whatever these symptoms of malaria happen to be. And so that's Mm -hmm. a bit of evidence, but it's nowhere near enough to make the conclusion that, in fact, they have a 60% chance of having malaria. But if, on the other hand, the person comes and says, I think I've got malaria and... I've just come back from Brazil and I was in the Amazon and I didn't take my anti-malarials and I was, you know, in a tent which wasn't, uh, you know, protected from the mosquitoes. All of this, well, then the probability goes up. Now, you might not be able to do a proper calculation in the Bayesian sense. Maybe you can. But this is the way in which, you know, you kind of the doctor is, is ruling out the alternatives to malaria and thinking more and more, this is malaria. And so then what do you do? Well, then you send them off the tests to find out if they in fact do have malaria. And if the test comes back positive, given all of this other evidence, they were in Brazil, they got bitten by mosquitoes, then you're pretty confident that, you know, this person actually has malaria. On the other hand, if that same patient was to say, oh, no, I've never been anywhere near mosquitoes. I've been working in an office for the last, you know, sort of um, six months and I haven't seen any mosquitoes. I think I've got malaria. The doctor might very well send them off for a test. And if the test comes back positive, then there is a less chance that that person actually has malaria. In other words, it could be a false positive. This is why we have this concept of false positive. And so this is a reasonable way of using Bayes' theory. It's a perfectly reasonable way of reasonably adjusting our priors, so they say, in light of new evidence, okay, in light of whether or not the person has been in Brazil or not and got a positive malarial test or not, these things must cohere and come together in order to help produce the best explanation. The person has malaria or the person doesn't have malaria. Yeah. So Fallibilist asks, does Brett think there's a biological cause for autism? In parentheses, question is fundamentally about universality. I don't know, but what I would say is that autistic people, people who are who show the symptoms that are associated with what people call autism, are still universal. They're still universal. You know, they're able to explain anything that anyone else can explain. They might choose not to. They might choose, just like any of us might, you know, in, it's always about in principle. The universality of the human mind is an in principle claim that in principle, one person can learn what anyone else can learn. That's the first part. And one person can model an explanation of any physical phenomenon that's out there in principle. That doesn't mean that they'll ever want to. Okay, and there are certain kinds of personalities that exist in the world. Some people might call them conditions. I might say they're personalities where the person just simply isn't interested in certain things that maybe the rest of us are. There's a whole bunch of things that I'm not interested in. Uh, That doesn't mean that my mind is not universal. You know, I'm just not interested in, for example, all the internal workings of how a trail bike's internal combustion engine works, okay? My brother is very interested in that kind of thing, but I'm not. But it doesn't mean that I couldn't if I really wanted to to learn how the internal combustion engine of a trail bike works. But the fact that I'm not interested means it's going to be that much harder for me to actually learn that thing. When you're not interested in something, it's much harder to learn. And so uh, this is the the way in which I would view something like autism is that um, there are people who just have very, very different interests to the rest of us. It doesn't mean that they're incapable. 
of doing what the rest of us humans are. And maybe they can be persuaded. You know, I think there are, there are certain kinds of treatments uh, for autism that involve, you know, talking and, and, and counselling and that kind of thing that can, that can help people change their minds if they want to. But, you know, again, we shouldn't coerce them. Um, if, if, they don't, if they want to live the life the way they're living it, then let's let them be. And if they don't, if they want help, if they're seeking help, if they seem to be in need of help, then we should also help them in a compassionate and, and understanding way. But um, yes, I, I, a person by definition is a universal explainer and autistic people are absolutely people. Uh, and so it doesn't matter who you are, you can in principle understand things, even if in practice you decide not to. But so you wouldn't say that it's analogous to, let's say, uh, schizophrenia under a theory like Michael Golding's, which uh, does invoke biological issues and not just ideas, different ideas. So even if there's a biological antecedent to any of these things, even if you are genetically predisposed to be schizophrenic or autistic, even if that's in your genes, so to speak, that does not mean that your mind can't be changed. It might be that much harder for you to change your mind, but that doesn't mean that in principle you can't change your mind. One of my favorite examples about this is, well, of all the things that we are going to be, if, if at all, we're going to be genetically predisposed to think to have an instinct for. It's the survival instinct. We want to survive. We have a genetic predisposition on this view to survive, and almost everyone does. But, hey, people commit suicide all the time, unfortunately. There are suicide bombers, you know, in the evil case. So it's not like the mind can't override this genetic predisposition. Now, other people might say, the genetic psychologist might say, you know, Brett Weinstein might come on and say, oh, no, but, you know, those, those suicide bombers or the, the people that commit suicide due to depression, they've got in their genes the gene for suicide, you know. And that is a, that is a <laughs> general purpose explanation for any psychological condition. It doesn't matter what you do. There is some genetic component for it, and you will always be able to explain it via that mechanism, via it's in your genes. However, we would say there's just not enough information available inside of the DNA, no matter how long that DNA molecule is. It's not infinitely long, and yet the repertoire of behaviors that people engage in is infinite. It is, in principle, infinite. We can do anything. We can think anything. So that can't all be stored inside that little molecule. Uh, big as it is, largest molecule, most complex molecule that we know of, we can't put everything down, all the behaviors that human beings have down to that. But the evolutionary psychologists, uh, nevertheless, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big industry <laughs> of, of telling people that mm -hmm. uh, much of the way in which you think and your interactions with other people come down to what's in your DNA. And what I would say about that is, well, there may be genetic components to a whole bunch of our behaviors, but that does not mean you are condemned to engage in those behaviors. You can change your mind. And even if you have an instinct for certain things, you can avoid doing it. No doubt there's absolutely genes for hunger. There are genes for hunger somewhere in your DNA. But that doesn't mean you have to eat. That doesn't mean you have to eat. People choose not to eat all the time. Sometimes people choose to eat too much. You can override any instinct that you have. It might be hard. It might be harder for some people than others. But that does not mean it's in principle impossible. In fact, we would always say it's in principle always possible yeah no i mean I, I feel like you're insinuating that i should lose some weight i'm really sensitive about that so <laughs> i don't appreciate that but all right, all right i'll pretend you didn't say that so i have two more questions for you brett the first one is why are some people more creative than others 
I don't think they are. So I, I just stop right there. You know, I think there was mm. this questioner that was saying something about, uh, oh, yes, there we are. Jitten um, was saying, yeah, to the likes of Bach, Mozart, Schubert, uh, why haven't they been surpassed? Well, I don't know. I, okay, so firstly, I'd pull him up on the fact that I, I don't think there is a quantitative difference between the creativity of one person versus another. I think everyone is equally creative. It's just where they choose to devote their attention. You know, there are some people who never go into science or ever go into any intellectual pursuit. Their entire uh, reason detra is to raise children, and I think that is the the high probably the high one of the highest callings that we can have as people is to raise children, raise another generation. And so, if you're putting putting your creative efforts into that, into you know ensuring your household is uh, as functional and loving and caring as it possibly can be, you're financially secure, and your your kids are enjoying their life. I mean, what more could you possibly hope for? You're being creative. You're devoting your intellectual capacity, your creative capacity, in order to. Uh, make the world a better place for your children, very locally in your own home kind of thing. That doesn't mean you're not creative. Just because you're not doing physics or just because you're not composing music does not mean you're not as creative as those people. Um, you know, even w- within the physics community, within the community of physicists, there are amazingly accomplished physicists. There are physicists who haven't published quite so much. And there are physicists who publish barely anything and they barely achieve anything. Now, what is the explanation for the difference between Is it an inherent difference in their physics capacity? Well, yes, but why? Well, because some physicists really do devote many, many hours, you know, 18 hours a day to doing nothing but thinking about physics. And other physicists who devote significantly less. And if they were honest with themselves, they'd say, you know what, really, I only do devote about three hours of thinking time a day, even though I'm a professional physicist. I get distracted too easily by this, that, or the other thing. And so I think that this is the explanation, that people divide their attention. And so some people just don't divide their attention. That The likes of Mozart, for example, I think he was singularly interested apart from when he was chasing women, are singularly interested mm-hmm. in composing ever better music. Now, whether or not he hasn't been surpassed, which is what the question has said, I don't know. We, we could debate that. Like, I think that, you know, yeah. modern musicians... He hasn't heard of very well. clearly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That kind of thing. So we would have a, a difference in, <laughs> in not only taste, but also a difference in, in criteria for assessing, you know, modern musicians. I think, you know, whoever that fellow was that wrote the music for Game of Thrones, the soundtrack to that, I think he's a phenomenal genius. Now, can you compare mm. him to someone like Mozart? I think maybe, possibly. So uh, that's, what I'd, that's what I'd say about that. The people are equally creative, but they devote those creative capacities to very different things and therefore they, they are noticed in the world to a different degree. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with the underlying sentiment there that, I mean, fundamentally, we all have the same creative capacity and we can devote that in different ways. Some show more outward output, like someone like Elon Musk, who's actually out in the world. He's a public figure. People see what he's doing or Mozart. But I, I might disagree with you. I, I don't think you meant this, but clearly some people, even within the domain of, let's say, child rearing that you brought up there, some parents are going to create very little knowledge and be very bad parents, whereas some other parents are going to create a whole lot of knowledge within that area and hence, in a sense, be much more creative, even if it's not in a scientific endeavor, within that realm. Do you see what I mean? In that way, it does make sense to call some people more creative than others. Within within a particular domain. So yes, there are there are many parents on the face of the planet Earth. Some of them 
are highly committed and devoted to their children and creating knowledge about how to make their home a, a better place for their children. And some parents who, let's be honest, aren't quite so devoted and who might be focused on other aspects of their own life. And so are using their creative capacity to indulge in those other areas of their life. And I'm not making any judgments here, by the way. You know, of course, parents no. are going to have their um are going to have their their their, their attention span divided. And sometimes that attention span is divided precisely so that they can provide for their children. And so this is why I say it's one of the most uh, intellectually difficult possible tasks one can undertake is the, the, the taking on of a child, the, the rearing of a child, um, looking after a child, because you, it must be just so hard to, de, to decide where do you put your energies? Is it in spending uh, more and more time with the child and helping the child? Is it in, in, in creating the financial conditions such that the child can have as much fun and grow as much as possible? Are these two things at odds? You know, it's a whole huge area of, yeah. um, uh, of, of discussion. But all I would all I would just say is that yes, some people are going to create knowledge in certain domains and not in other domains. And when you when you when you judge one person against another within a narrow domain, you're you're going to find um, quantitative differences with how much you know how good they are, how skillful they are at that particular thing, whether it's physics or whether it's you know being a parent. Yeah, and I guess it's not as easy as saying, well, it's all hardware, and this person has. You know, more IQ, which we think is a software issue anyway, but, you know, those claims that you refuted earlier from evolutionary psychology, for instance, hmm. don't cut it. Can I ask you one more or should we? No, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. You're on fire, dude. <laughs> Damn, man. All right, let's see here. Um, maybe I'm getting delirious. You know, it is 10 p.m. over here in Australia. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, shit. They, I, I've never done it this long, but I mean, I, I'm just, uh, I'm loving it. So this is great. Let's see here. Yeah, right. That's what but it's like said. you said, I, I, <laughs> now when it comes to me, they rarely say that, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. So the last question is from Fallibilista. And he says, he, uh, I suppose you, mentioned he was writing an essay on incrementalism. What is his view on Popper, Popper's piecemeal approach, and how does that relate to the taxes are theft libertarianism? Uh, so incrementalism is this idea that in any domain, what we want to do is to make incremental progress as fast as possible, but always incrementally. I call it the the digital view of knowledge so that if you incrementally change in some way, that you can figure out whether or not this incremental change has been for the better or not. And maybe it's an incremental change within a scientific theory, and so you can figure out after an experiment whether in fact it does comport with reality or not. But if it doesn't, then you can go back to the old theory pretty quickly. And in policymaking in government, then you want to make this incremental change such that you can check to see the effects and if it works, well, then continue in that direction or otherwise go backwards. This is opposed to the idea of revolution, especially revolution in politics, but revolution anywhere else as well, completely upending everything that we know. You hope that what comes out the end of that is something better. And you've got no reason to think that upending absolutely everything is going to result in something better. What you should expect mm is in upending everything, you take yourself back to the Stone Age kind of thing. You, 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 you've given up on the knowledge of how to run a civilization, all this implicit knowledge about how to run a civilization. How does this relate to the idea that taxes are theft? Uh, 
it it doesn't. I don't think that there's a there's a straight line between the incrementalism idea and the taxes are theft idea. I'm just against coercion. Uh, just broadly speaking, I'm against coercion. I'm against authority. Authority in science. For example, in in saying that oh, we need to believe this theory because this expert scientist says so, uh, you know, believe the science. That's the that's the the catch cry of today, and I, I think that's an authoritarian response. What we need to do is, of course, um, to take seriously our best explanations, but that does not mean that we need to believe. In other words, to accept as absolutely true uh, these scientific theories. So I reject authority within science. I also reject, and I like to say, question authority, but I, I don't like the idea of authority within states and within governments either. We have them, and I guess the incremental part is I would want to incrementally undo the amount of power that certain states and certain governments have. Uh, at least, you know, in the history and for everyone listening, you, you, if you are a committed supporter of one side of politics, you have to expect that for a certain amount of time, the other side is going to be in charge. So don't you want them to have as little power as possible over your life? Because when they get in charge, aren't they going to make the place just awful for you to exist in because you're a real supporter of the other side. So incrementalism here is to just gradually enact policies to take away the power of the state. And I would say gradually implement policies to take away taxes as well. Now, why is taxation theft? Well, we could go down that road, but it's probably a topic really for another podcast uh, to explain the coercive nature of when someone puts effort in, when someone puts physical work into their day-to-day life, trying to earn money for themselves and their family, of a third party coming along and saying, hey, you know that output, that work that you did, I'm going to take a share of that. that that's mine because I'm mm. from the government and here's my badge and you know we built that road outside and you, know, he, you, you owe us for that. Um, so we could, that's, a, that's a huge discussion that uh, yeah, maybe we can save for our next conversation. Let's do that. Brett for precedent, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> definitely not. Yeah. Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> no, because then you wouldn't have time to do your lovely uh, videos and uh, podcasts. So, Yeah, man. I, I mean, I, I had a great time. This was a leviathan of an episode, and uh, I'm really psyched to have gotten to pick your brain for this long, man. So uh, thanks Wonderful. a million. I hope we get to talk again soon, and uh, good luck with all your future endeavors here. Let's do it. And again, and more power to you, Chris. I look forward to continuing to be a subscriber and a listener to Do Explain. All right. Too kind. Thanks, man. Have a good day. <laughs>